I'm Chuck Smeaton from the Royal Institution of Australia, and this is a Cosmos Briefing bonus episode. Today we talk with Edward Santo, Commissioner at the Australian Human Rights Commission since August 2016, and leading the Commission's work on, amongst other things, technology and human rights. From 2010 to 2016, Ed was Chief Executive of the Public Interest Advocacy Centre, a leading non-profit organisation that promotes human rights through strategic litigation, policy development and education. And in 2017, he was recognised as a young global leader by the World Economic Forum. Ed was previously a senior lecturer at the University of New South Wales Law School, a research director at the Gilbert and Tobin Centre of Public Law, and a solicitor in private practice. Today's interview is hosted by Cosmos Editor-in-Chief Ian Cannellan. I'm speaking this afternoon to Human Rights Commissioner Edward Santo about the recently released Human Rights and Technology Final Report that the Human Rights Australian Human Rights Commission has produced. Ed, um, what, what did you have to do to consider science and tech in a human rights light and and what's the background to that work? Well, we're we're conscious that we're living in uh, revolutionary times, Um, you know, where so many of us carry around things like a a smartphone without giving it a second thought. And yet, um, you know, the power of a smartphone is literally millions of times greater than the computers that took Apollo 11 to the moon and so that, that, that change in science is having a real-world effect. And we're excited about how new technology, such as artificial intelligence, can uh, make our world more inclusive and connected. Um, but we also wanted to explore some of the risks for our human rights. And it's really uh, something that we felt had been under-focused on is some of those risks and threats, particularly to rights like privacy, given that personal information is the fuel of AI, but also uh, things like equality and non-discrimination. Australia is um, has has signed several human rights treaties. Is that right, Ed? Yeah, that's right. So we've um, signed all of the major human rights treaties that make up what's known as the International Bill of Rights. And we were involved really in drafting some of those treaties. So we've always taken our international human rights law obligations seriously, and that's a good thing. Uh, and so... We then have incorporated some of those uh, rights into our Australian law as well. So that makes it completely binding here in Australia as well as internationally. So in in short, we we have to comply with international human rights law, but it's also the right thing to do. Our people, our population expects us to do that. And I think with um, the rise of new technology like AI, people are just starting to glimpse how that will engage our basic human rights and, uh, and and so the need to take that seriously. Okay, so it's this combination of galloping technological change and our human rights obligations that's motivated the report. How long have you been working on it? So we started the project just over three years ago and we first basically asked a bunch of questions. Um, we asked people to tell us, you know, how is AI affecting you? How's it changing your life? And what are some of the things that you might be concerned about? And over time, we we were able to present, I think, quite a detailed picture of how um, technology like AI can um, engage people's human rights. And then we we moved to the the harder edge part, which is 
what are some of the human rights problems that we really needed to zero in on? And what are the changes both in terms of law as well as other practice that need to take place in order to ensure that our rights are upheld? The report's really clear that um, human rights, that, I beg your pardon, the technology, AI and technology, uh, can be a, a, a very faithful servant or a very nasty one. Um, can you, and, and the principal concern identified is the use of AI in decision-making. Can you give me an example of where that would play out? The report addresses both government and private sector. So what, what would that look like in the real world? I mean, so the, the promise of AI is better, more data-driven decisions. And uh, we know that the use cases of AI are kind of limited only by our imagination. So to take a typical situation, imagine a bank is using um, an AI that system to, to make decisions um, on bank loans. Um, and uh, typically they'll, they'll use a machine learning system. So they'll train the computer um, on many, many years of previous decisions. Now we know that historically, uh, if you go back 20, 30, 40 more years, uh, women were much less likely to be granted bank loans, not for any good reason, but a series of prejudices and historical biases. Now, the problem is that if you've trained your AI system on a whole bunch of really old decisions like that, then the outcome may well be that that sort of uh, old form of discrimination um, re-enlivens like a zombie and comes back in a new form because the computer learns, understandably but wrongly, that women are less uh, suitable for, for being granted bank loans. So, so that problem is, is known as algorithmic bias. And so what we were able to do in our project was to really shine a light on how those sorts of problems can arise. Um, and uh, we didn't just focus on diagnosis, we then went to treatment because we're, we are enthusiastic about the use of AI. But what we wanted to make clear is that you, could, you couldn't just do it in a cavalier way. You needed to look at uh, where the risks are and then address those risks in order to use it safely. Um, it's an interesting example, uh, banking private enterprise, but I think I can see straight away. So this could have application, for instance, in, um, in, in aged care or social security at government level. Absolutely. I mean, we've, we've seen with the so-called robo-debt scenario. Uh, there it was a very simple form of algorithm that was operating um, and it was coupled with an automated decision-making system. Um, the, the net effect, of course, was that you had very serious problems happening at scale. And when something goes wrong with these sorts of systems, they can scale very quickly. And that's something that we have to be particularly mindful of. And, and, and that's an interesting example because um, it showed us doing something we really shouldn't do, but we do all too often. And that is beta test a new technology on especially vulnerable people. Um, yeah. And again, if something goes wrong with that, those groups of people, then the, uh, you know, the, 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 the results can be devastating because um, you know you just take someone's income down just a small notch if they have very little money to start with, then that can be catastrophic. Mm. 
Ed, the report devotes a whole chapter to facial recognition and biometric tech. Um, I think most of us are already aware of um, the, the astonishing versatility of facial recognition, but this is clearly quite an area of concern. Can you, can you tell me a little bit about that? Many of us will be familiar with uh, facial recognition um, because we may use it in our smartphones or in a tablet device. And essentially there we're using it kind of as a, you know, a pin or a password um, or instead of a pin or a password. And uh, it's known as one-to-one -one facial recognition. So it's asking a relatively simple question, which is, is this person who they claim to be? Uh, and we're not so concerned about that scenario. The scenario we're concerned about is something that people may not have experienced directly, but may have seen on TV. And that's known as one-to-many facial recognition. So where uh, an individual is uh, identified in a, a crowd, a large group of people. Now, in a high stakes area like policing or law enforcement, that sort of technology can cause two particular problems that we're concerned about. The first is just one of accuracy. Uh, so in 2021, the um, accuracy of, of one-to-many facial recognition is probably less uh, good than anyone you know who isn't blind. And that's right. the problem with those TV shows we all watch, right? We, we, we see them work perfectly um, in, you know, cop shows, um, but in reality, there's a very high error rate. And that error rate is not evenly distributed. It's uh, much more likely to make errors in respect of people with dark skin, uh, people with physical disability and women. And that's something that should worry us because we know some of those groups have historically suffered a disproportionate burden of injustice. So, so that's one problem, um, the accuracy problem. But even if all of those problems were fixed, we also need to ask a, a really basic question, which is, do we want to live in a society that um, is creeping towards mass surveillance? Because the more we use that sort of facial recognition, biometric surveillance in the public square, the more we uh, lose kind of the capacity to, to have some kind of division between our public and our private selves. And, and, and that's something that we should consider quite deeply. As a, um, as a culture, we seem um, astonishingly passive about <laughs> surveillance. Um, the, the, the preponderance of, of cameras in public and this sort of thing has increased markedly over the years. I'm, I'm going a little off topic here, but we don't, we don't seem to be too bothered by it as a, as a group. Yeah, it's an interesting question, isn't it? So we, um, we, we've certainly uh, asked the community their views about this. And the interesting thing is that there is um, fairly low levels of trust or certainly decreasing trust in government and the private sector when they start to engage in these surveillance type activities. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's true that um, so far in a country like Australia, we've um, accepted some level of kind of increased surveillance or public scrutiny, but it seems that there are some real limits and we might well be pushing up against them right now. Yeah, right. Uh, going backwards to facial recognition and biometric tech, um, the recommendation is that um, these, these 
things get excluded from very important decision making until there are appropriate checks and balances in place. What what will those what would those regulations or checks and balances look like? So basically, it comes down to those two key concerns. Um, we are concerned about um, misuse, in other words, where where there's errors or where someone um, deliberately tries to, um, I guess, you know use facial recognition to cause someone uh, unjustified harm. And so there needs to be clear protections in place there for people's human rights. So um, it must be absolutely crystal clear that a a facial recognition system in a high stakes area of decision making cannot be used unless it is um, a sufficient level of accuracy and it's not, um, don't have all of the inaccuracy clustering around certain groups of people. So, So that's, that's the, misuse problem. There's also, as I said before, this problem of surveillance or overuse of the technology. And so we also think that there need to be some very clear boundaries there that that say, well, if you can justify it um, in a particular area um, and you can show that that it's not going to cause harm um, and that it's not going to cause overuse, that's fine. But that's a completely different matter to say, just have at it and use it whenever you want. That, that's something that we're really concerned about because, as I say, it takes us towards uh, a kind of a more surveillance culture that I think uh, anyone really uh, would accept in Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of vulnerable groups, the, the report devotes a couple of chapters to people with disabilities. Did you identify particular problems among people with disabilities and, and what, what are the proposals to deal with them? So, yeah, we did. And it, it really is, um, I think, a reflection of how life, just ordinary life in our community is changing. Um, so I started, you know, my career as a, as a human rights lawyer. And so many of the cases that I've worked on have been um, on disability discrimination. So, so, so I know from, from my clients that if you have a building that doesn't have a ramp that allows you to go in, if you're a wheelchair, you literally can't get into the building. Um, if you have a train or a bus or other piece of public transport um, that uh, doesn't accommodate people with disability, then people can't get to work. They can't move around the, the physical environment. And so what's changing is, of course, our environment is much more online. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we've we focused in on digital communications technologies. So internet is the most obvious example of that. So if someone who is blind, let's say, um, goes to a website and, and the website doesn't work with, with uh, their screen reader, um, then that will lock them out of that website. Now, that really matters if it's an important mm-hmm. website that they can uh, use to access um, government services or even just something um, like, you know, one of the supermarket websites which allows them to buy um, food online. Those things are really important. And so a big focus of the report is about making sure that people, um, the, the, the entire community benefits from this rise of digital communications technology equally and that some people are not left behind. And that's something that we, um, we're, we're really concerned about because there's some great things that you can do with communications tech. Um, but as we become more reliant on it, we don't want to have like this too class system. Mm. Uh, finally, the, the Human Rights Commission recommends 
this is the, the, the main news point over the past week or so that the commission has recommended that an AI safety commissioner be appointed and uh, that that commissioner leads a task force examining these issues while to, to, to build capacity and knowledge while we, we hurtle towards this um, fourth industrial revolution future. Um, do you think it's, it's likely that, that this proposal will be accepted by government? And, and, and if so, when do you think it might be up and running? Look, we certainly hope so. And we've received very strong support from the community at large, from the private sector, public sector, but ultimately it's a decision for um, the minister, the attorney general, um, to, to accept or not, or not accept. And, and uh, she's, you know, working through our recommendations and, and considering them very carefully. Uh, but, but ultimately, you're absolutely right. We're, we're, we're hurtling towards a future that is very different from the one that many of us grew up with. And that's not a bad thing, right? But, but there are risks and threats. And because that pace of change is so, so fast, we do need to make sure that our regulators are keeping up. And so um, the proposal for an AI safety commissioner is, is partly to build the capacity of regulators to, to keep us safe, um, but also to be a trusted source of expertise, particularly for, for government, um, as, as government continues to um, embrace AI as well, that they can be able to ask someone who is, uh, you know, disinterested in the best sense, they don't have a, um, an interest in the, in the outcome, but, but just wants to make sure that, that people are protected. Do you think there's going to be new legislation as a result of this, or is it more like an adaptation of existing laws? Yeah, good question. I mean, it'll be a bit of both. So we started with a hypothesis that there would need to be a whole heap of new legislation. And the more we saw it, the more we looked at it, we, we, we saw that the problem was actually more subtle. It was that there was a, a lot of existing law that, that wasn't being effectively applied or enforced. And so that's that's a change that doesn't require new legislation. It requires better reg, regulatory action, mm -hmm. um, bit of education, those sorts of things. So that's the main part. But yes, there are some gaps in the law that need to be filled and it's just less than we thought um, when we started out. So that's a good thing as well because, you know, huge amounts of new legislation can be hard to achieve. Um, it's, it's much more targeted in the end what we came up with. Human Rights Commissioner Edward Santo, thank you so much for joining me. It's been really illuminating. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode. Remember that you can head to cosmosmagazine.com via the link in the description for more great content. You can also subscribe to Cosmos Magazine, Australia's only science print magazine, and Cosmos Weekly, our online subscription-based deep dive into the biggest issues. This episode is a briefing bonus that complements our main Cosmos Briefing video webinars. You can register for our next briefing via the link that you'll also find in the description. And remember, if you support science and its communication, please support our work at the Royal Institution of Australia. I'm Chuck Smeaton. Today's interviews were hosted by Ian Cannellan and our executive producer is Catherine Roberts. Thank you. Thank you.